let's, let's get into the text then this morning. Um, we don't have as much time as obviously a preacher would like. Um, so I, I, I want to turn your attention to the book of Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible this morning, would you raise your hand and, and one of our ushers would love to come and bring you a, a Bible. Keep it raised if you don't have one yet. Um, if that's your first Bible, we would love for you to keep it. Um, if it's not, then why don't you go ahead and give that back so that we can give it to someone else who does not have a Bible. But you're welcome to use it for the morning. We're into the Bible here. We preach regularly text from the Bible. We believe it is God's Word and we believe it has terrific relevance for us um, for today. We're in a very short series on the Son of God. So what I want you to hear too is we're moving from kind of talking about the Spirit of God to the Son of God, and then we'll close off with the Father God. And we want to kind of try to give as best as we can a rounded understanding of the way God represents Himself in Scripture. We call it the Trinity with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We did it backwards. Um, but it seems to just line up right, rightly with Easter. And so last week, Matt unpacked a, a text uh, from the book of Mark as well that was about just these glimpses of Jesus. That is, he's moving towards um, this crucifixion, this execution at Jerusalem. I mean, that's one of the common things most people know about Jesus is that he did die on a cross. A lot of people have crosses around their necks or they, they've heard those kind of things. Maybe they have a little bit of a church background. Even if you don't, there's a good chance that you've heard about Jesus and that he died on a cross somewhere. You're not maybe sure what that means. But there's a lot of glimpses that, that, uh, of what happens to Jesus as he goes to the cross that are incredibly important for us to understand. And sometimes we don't really pay attention to them. And, and this week is typically called Palm Sunday, which is, is um, last week's text, actually. But we wanted to, what we wanted to do is give you kind of images of what Jesus is thinking and how he's acting. And, and really this morning, I, I know it's going to sound like I'm giving some information for some of you, but I don't want to give information here this morning. I want your heart to be changed. I want you to hear what Jesus did, what God did in telling you a story of how he works. And he did this remarkable thing, which was he took thousands of years, really, of, of history, and he juxtaposed or superimposed this particular story over top of what he was doing so that you could understand. Um, if you don't know what superimpose means, obviously um, you haven't been on the internet lately because that's basically what the internet was invented for was all these crazy superimposed pictures. I've got some for you this morning that I think were pretty cool. Can't necessarily see it as clear in the, in the color there, but you, you see it's remarkable. That's a World War I picture superimposed over top of a modern day picture of wherever that is. It's remarkable, but that's, that's what, what that does is it spans a, a number of years for us and reminds us of how some things don't, change at all. Superimposed by definition is putting two things side by side where both are apparent. That's the actual definition of superimpose. And what they do is they help kind of interpret one another. And so you see it kind of helps interpret uh, where this is and what this looks like. Next slide is um, kind of cool. That's a little toy, although it obviously looks like a streetcar in the middle of the street. I'm not exactly sure where that is. It could actually be anywhere, but that's what superimpose means. Put something 
in place of another thing. Last picture here. Uh, this dates me, of course. Some of you can barely see it because it's so perfect, but I actually listened to this band. I believe I have this on my iTunes. Um, back in the day, Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory is the name of the album. Someone obviously found the exact street where the picture was taken and superimposed their version of that over top of the actual. And so you see how sometimes these things um, reinterpret one another. So here's the deal. Here's what Jesus did. He took an old story that every Jew would have known off by heart. He took the story of what is known as the Passover. Or if you're super hip, you can call it the Passover. Someone said that this morning. Okay? You want to sound really educated, you can call it the Passover. That's okay. So he took this image of the Passover. Every Jew would have known this. We don't really know this story very well at all. We actually try to celebrate it as a city group because it's so rich in imagery, rich in symbolism, and good grief, the lamb is great, okay? So we, we do it for some of those reasons because there's, there's some of these great things. But what he did was he took this image and feeling of the Passover and he superimposed it over top of the new covenant. It's a remarkable thing that he did. It was like he did the same thing with the album cover. And he showed that there was a deep connection between the two. Because some of you actually think that all of the stuff written prior to Jesus is useless information. So you look in your Bible and you see the majority of your Bible consists of information before Jesus. And you're like, why would we have all this information? Here's why. is because Jesus wants to do this constantly. He wants to take the old story of God and superimpose it over top of what he's doing so people can see the connections because there's something about a rich traditional history that helps you grab this. So when people knew what the Passover was inside and out, he could very clearly simply say, there's a new covenant in town and I'm the new covenant. You guys used to do this. I am this. You guys used to have to kill this. I will die. And so I want you to feel that. That's more of what I want to do this morning. I want you to feel the Passover more than just hear about it. And so that what, in order to hear what the Last Supper is, and let me pause and just say, this is, this is basically our only kind of symbolic thing that we do really as a church other than baptism. Baptism is also symbolic. It's important to us as well. But every week we celebrate what we call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper or depending on your tradition, the Eucharist. We're fine with all of those words. But I would say this last supper that we celebrate each week will become even more meaningful when you hear about the first supper. Because this was not simply instituted in a vacuum. It had this superimposed feeling over top of it that when Jesus grabbed some of the elements of the Passover and changed their meaning for the people, what happened was remarkable for the disciples. The imagery had so much pop to it. It was like suddenly what he was doing was becoming 3D. And so my hope is that when we take this meal, we can feel a little bit more what those disciples were originally feeling. And so I'm going to read the text for you this morning. And just a, an FYI, this is a little bit of a, a kind of a nerdy pastor preaching thing. But this particular writer of this story of God had a real impressive technique back in the day. It's called sandwiching. I know. I had you at sandwiching, right? What he does is he takes 
couple stories and he sandwiches them around each other in order to make the meaning rise up. And they help, again, interpret one another for us. And so I have this whole passage, not necessarily going to be able to reach into it all, but because it comes as a sandwich. And in order to kind of really understand this well, you kind of have to understand the whole sandwich. And so here it is in Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And it feels, I know, right, I'm popping right into the story, but remember that he sandwiches a lot of this stuff as we go along. And it says this, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Very common for, for Jesus to say this. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says... Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. I want to stop right there and explain this. This is the first supper. This is the first supper. In order to understand the last supper, we have to understand the first supper. And so what was happening here, these scholars are honestly they debate back and forth on what exactly, how this works. It looks like Jesus is kind of predicting something and so they, they really push into this idea that Jesus is a, a great prophet who can predict things and I believe that absolutely 100%. I also think that based upon the context of where this particular story is in the text, that there are people out to kill Jesus. This is a time where Jesus is trying to be clandestine. He's trying to do what he's trying to do without being too obvious to everyone else. There are religious leaders seeking for him to kill him. They actually want to get it done before Passover. Can you imagine the irony behind that? They want to kill off God so they can get to the celebration of how God saves them. Did you pick up on the irony there? It's amazing. And so Jesus really, he wants to do this stuff, but he is an Orthodox Jew. He follows everything as the law lays out. So he knows that he can't just celebrate the Passover whenever he wants, however he wants. He does it within the complete Jewish context. So there's a time crunch for him. So he's seeking, he knows people are the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to kill the Paschal Lamb, which it was called are seeking to kill the Lamb of God, which we'll find out. And so Jesus says, keep it secret. Keep it secret. You see him throughout the story of God. Please don't tell anyone what I'm doing. And they do anyways. Because God's so awesome, you can't keep it to yourself. So I think perhaps there's also something going on where there's a code word where Jesus has previously talked to someone, he says, go into this, and the guy there carrying a jar of water, which was kind of weird, because actually only ladies tended to carry a jar of water, jar of water so that would be, you know, it, it would be a pretty clear sign. Right? It would be, I, I don't, I, I'm going to get in trouble if I say something about like or as, so I'll just say it was weird for a man to be carrying a jar at that time. You could pick him out in a crowd. Dude's carrying a jar. Ask that guy. Say, the teacher is here. Now, I don't know which one of these it is, actually. I, I think maybe it's both. In some ways, I'd say just, who cares, even? 
It just shows you that Jesus knows clearly what's going on. He's got this under control. He doesn't just kind of guess at things. He has got a plan. He's following the plan of God. It's remarkable. And so he says, where are you going to prepare this meal? And here's what this meal has looked like. I have to go through this because many of us don't really know this. And even myself going through this was very helpful for me. So that this, is, this is called the, the cedar meal. So interesting, the Hebrew word for story is Haggadah, I think, or Haggadah. Uh, I don't know, Passover, Passover, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not sure I'm saying my Hebrew right. I'm pretty sure most of you aren't Hebrew scholars, so I'm okay with this. But uh, Haggadah or Haggadah, it means story, and cedar means order. So there is an order and a story to which all Jews or Hebrews or people of Israel would have celebrated this. They, they have a specific order. You see it in the plate, even the way they celebrate their special meal. And even to back up, I'll say, what, what, what were they celebrating? Well, essentially, in a few words, this is what they were celebrating. As God builds his people in a place called Egypt, Egypt puts them under slavery and they can't stand it. They cry out to God. If you've ever seen the Prince of Egypt, who's seen the Prince of Egypt? Okay, some of you. I would encourage you, go see the Prince of Egypt uh, somehow. It's all about this crying out and asking God for deliverance. You're supposed to be our people. We want to be out of slavery. And, and, and while they're in Egypt, they multiply like crazy. Like they just, the Egyptians can't get rid of them. So instead of, they're afraid that they're going to overpopulate you know, their culture. And so what they do is they basically say, well, if we make them slaves, then we can kill them off and keep them, keep their numbers low. But that doesn't happen. They just keep multiplying because God blesses them and wants to build his big people. And there's an enormous amount of people, maybe million, maybe six million, somewhere in there. A lot of people in Egypt. And God brings along a man named Moses and Moses essentially begins to lead his people and he uses the phrase that many of us might know and some of us might not, let my people go. And so what he's doing is he, he's conversing with the leader of Egypt and he's, he's, he's saying like, if you don't let these Israelites go and, and become God's people and worship God's people in the desert, that, then God will bring a plague on you. And so we go through a number of plagues, a lot of plagues. Some of them are really gross. Some of them are really weird. It gets the attention of the Egyptian leader, Pharaoh, but it does not change his heart. And the final plague is essentially um, God is going to attack the firstborn of every person in the land of Egypt who does not follow the instructions of what will become the Passover. And here's what happened, is that the Spirit of God hovered over top of and said, I will take the firstborn. Now, you have to remember, the firstborn represents everything in the, these cultures. The firstborn child, the firstborn son especially, is the one who takes the family name to the next level. It's why many people wanted sons in those days, because if you didn't, you couldn't be taken to the next level. And God said, what I want you to do is somebody is going to have to pay the price. Somebody's going to have to pay a price for your freedom, but it won't be your child. I will give you the option that if you choose, you can slaughter a perfect lamb. Don't break its bones. It has to be one year old. It has to be in perfectly health, healthy condition. This was to prevent people from saying, well, that lamb really isn't 
you know, it's kind of survival of the fittest. So that lamb isn't really doing all that well. Hey, he needs to go anyways, or she needs to go anyways. So we'll just slaughter this lamb off. No, it had to be like lamb cut prime in its, in its life. One-year-old lamb. Perfect. And it, it had to pay the price. Well, this lamb was then slaughtered. Blood was shed. And when that, that lamb was slaughtered, usually through the slitting of the lamb's throat, blood was spilled. And God said, take that blood and take a, a hyssop branch. Take something that you can smear with and you dip it in that lamb who's just been slaughtered. Dip it in their blood. You can imagine how graphic and smelly this could be, right? He said, take that blood and wipe it on your doorpost. The doorposts become, in a sense, an altar by which when the Spirit of God then hovers over top of the camp, he sees the blood and he passes over those houses. The Egyptians didn't listen to God. They didn't want to. And they paid the price. They were sacrificed, kind of what we would say is the natural consequences of, of not listening to God, which is death. So the Bible describes. There's great mourning in Egypt. And Pharaoh says, enough is enough. Get out of here. Get out. And from then on, God's people were required every year at a certain particular time Remember the Passover. Slaughter a lamb again. Don't spread its blood on the doorpost, but slaughter it in such a way in which you remember that God liberated you from slavery, from bondage out of Egypt. Now, this sounds really graphic, but I would say the atmosphere felt more like Christmas time around here, right? Anyone like Christmas time? Like you're like, the real meaning of Christmas. Some of you are like, give or take. I don't know. The real meaning of Christmas is a month long of listening to music that I would never listen to otherwise and giving gifts to people that I don't really appreciate. But there's a sense of festivity, right? Everyone's kind of like, hey, it's Christmas time. I'm generous. That's the feeling of the Passover. It was like this week-long celebration. In fact, the Passover was only one day, but there was another feast called the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this was part of the, the symbolism, but the, you used unleavened bread, which we now use, by the way. We use it for different purposes. It keeps a lot better, by the way. It doesn't mold in the same way because it doesn't have yeast in it. Yeast symbolized decay. So God said, I don't want decay in the bread and you can cook it really fast. It takes about 20 minutes, really. It takes a long time to prepare, but really it can cook very fast. So I said, I want you to have this image of bread that is prepared so fast and not contaminated by decay. I want you to remember that. The speed at which the people after 400 years, imagine that. After 400 years of crying out for God to save them, he did it in one afternoon. It was so fast, they didn't even have time to let bread rise. That was the image that God wanted. Okay, I know this took some time to get, but I want you to feel this. And so let's go through the lamb there is the lamb shank. So it's to use the shank bone. It was very important that no bones were broken. This would come in very uh, important later on in kind of some of this imagery. In fact, this is why we see in the New Testament story of Jesus why none of his bones were broken even though he was crucified. One of the things that happened to Jesus on the cross is usually when they executed people, they would uh, put a little platform uh, kind of to stand at the bottom there because otherwise you essentially would suffocate to death. That's what crucifixion was. And so if they weren't, people weren't dying fast enough, what they would do is they would literally 
break their legs so that they would sag and not be able to use their legs. So then they would hang deeper and then they would suffocate faster. I know, the humane way to execute someone on a cross, apparently. But Jesus' bones were not broken. In fact, when the soldiers came after, they said, hey, he's already dead. They went to break his legs to speed the process up. They said, no broken bones. So even in this image of the lamb, way back in the Passover, we're starting to see things, why this is so important later on. After the temple is destroyed, there is no... um, there is no kind of sacrifice of the lamb. So in 80, 70, there's, there's, there's not really any sacrifice today. Uh, some people use various things. Um, we still, the lamb's already been sacrificed for us new covenant Christians. Um, so we can enjoy the goodness of lamb in our Passover meals. But that's kind of the highlight. Okay, that's the highlight. Highlight. It, it's not mentioned in the text at all, which is so strange. The actual lamb. Secondly, there's something called matzoth, which is the bread. More specifically, unleavened bread. Matzoth. I think I'm saying that bad. Wrongly, sir. Sorry. This bread is used at the beginning of meal, the meal where you break it and you actually say a blessing to God. Then there's the maror. These were bitter herbs, herbs, usually horseradish or the stem of a head of lettuce. I don't know who's eats the head of lettuce, but apparently it's quite bitter and symbolizes the bitterness of four centuries of slavery. So what you have is as you eat these elements, it's not like they go well together, by the way. We've done this and we're like, why would you put horseradish with lettuce? And this doesn't really make sense because it's not about foods that go together. It's about what they symbolize. And so you eat them kind of in this order to remember all these things. And by eating them, you, you bring memory upon yourself like, oh yeah, God saved us from 400 years of slavery. Then there's the karpas. This is, a, this is kind of a first, first fruits symbol. So it's usually something of the ground because they believed, like we still believe in a different kind of a way, that, that God really is, is the producer of all the stuff that we have. So the first crops, the first harvest, you should take something from that. So they took the first fruits from the ground. Um, some actually, uh, some commentators view this as like another bitterness thing. So apparently there were some very bitter commentators back in the day and they had two or three different symbols of bitterness. But this is usually symbolized by parsley dipped in salt water. So you see it over there. Parsley and then you dip it in salt water. Salt water symbolizes the tears because there's a lot of tears in those days. Then there's the Haroseth. My personal favorite um, Eating-wise, here's why. Wine, walnuts, and apples. I mean, you had me at wine, walnuts, and apples, okay? It's delicious. It's my favorite part. There's kind of this real good taste to it, but it's, it's cool when you even see this. When you see this mixture, it, it looks like mortar. It looks like the mortar that they would use, and that's why they have that. It's the mortar that they would use to put the bricks together to remind them this slavery was bad slavery. It was hard labor, They worked every day. They died laboring. Um, I'm not really sure about the egg, to be honest. It is a part of it, but as far as I know, the egg represents an egg, I think. It's roasted. Some say it's a symbol of spring. I couldn't get to the heart of it, uh, why it was there. It doesn't seem to be in the original uh, story, but it's there. 
Um, it's a symbol of like spring, newness, ironically. <laughs> when we've celebrated, we've celebrated using deviled eggs. Don't ask me why. I mean, they're delicious, but it's kind of weird to celebrate the Passover with deviled eggs. Anyways, some of you get that. Then four cups of wine. Some of you are like, okay, I have got to start celebrating Passover. Four cups of wine, two before the meal, two after the meal. But they're not just like four cups of wine, like let's get drunk. They're spaced out so that they can be symbolic. Four cups of wine, wine is, is just a, a, well, some people would view it as a terrific gift of God. And so there's this, in this essence, this, this, you drink this wine and you pass it around, you drink the whole cup together as a way of getting um, understanding blessing. Four, because there are four ways in which God saved his people. And in Exodus chapter 12 and 13, you can see this, but he says, I will take you out of Egypt. I will save you from Egypt. I will redeem you out of Egypt. And I will make you as a nation out of Egypt. So every time you drink these four cups, you, you remind that God is a saving God. He's saved. He saved. He saved. You're like, we got to start doing that. Drinking wine as a way of saying that God saved us. And it's like, amen. That's why we have wine here at the front to remind us. He saves, he saves, he's salvation, he's salvation. In fact, the third cup, which is the real important one, we think that this is what Jesus actually used, is you say, God is my salvation, and you drink it and you pass it on. Now, this is what's hovering over top of this whole thing. Isn't that incredible? My hope is that you kind of you hear and you feel and you can almost taste. Some of you are like, I'm really hungry for walnuts all of a sudden. I don't know, I don't know why. And wine. It's like, dip it in the wine, okay? No one gets to take the wine and drink it for themselves in today's celebration. But this is what's happening. And so when Jesus says, go prepare that, the disciples are not thinking, let's go. And, and this is so morbid. They're thinking, this is awesome. We get to celebrate with who we know is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who saves. We get to celebrate God saving us with him. And Jesus is going to do something that will blow their minds so much that they need the Holy Spirit of God to connect the dots. Because they don't understand what's happening as this happened. I'll read it for you. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at table and eating. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Second part of our text. Let's notice how painful this supper was for Jesus. I want us to get the feeling of how painful this could possibly be. In the meal whereby Jesus is going to institute how much grace he has for people, how God has come down to save his people, one of his closest and best friends, and perhaps the guy sitting next to him will betray him to the religious leaders. I can't imagine this. You know, if I had an elders meeting, my closest friends, people I'd been in ministry with for three or four years, 
I had known them, and I knew that they were going to turn their back on the church, I don't think I could pray for them at that moment. How do you feel when someone betrays you? How do you feel when someone doesn't like you on Facebook? Doesn't feel all that good, does it? Here's the great thing about Jesus. He looks betrayal straight in the eye. And he says, I'm still going to the cross for you. What does this painful story tell us? I think it tells us both the super sovereignty of Jesus Christ and his great love and compassion for people. That this isn't a meal whereby he just kind of did it or he just accidentally or he guessed his way into it. This is where he looked betrayal and pain in the face and he said, this is going to happen again and again and again, but I will do this as an act of love for my people. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. This is why I think it's so helpful to do this week in, week out. That friends, when we have been betrayed, when someone has come to us and, and, and done mean things to us, that there is nothing compared to what we have done to our Savior, Jesus Christ. He actually says, this is the basis for all your forgiveness. You can forgive other people of the wrongs that they have done to you because he has forgiven us of much. So I think this painful supper, supper also teaches us about the way the gospel works itself in our life. By the way, I've been describing the gospel a little bit for you in bits and pieces. The gospel shorthand is, is that Jesus died for our sins. Or as the book of Jonah would write, the Lord is our salvation. The Lord saves. That's the gospel. The Lord saves. God saves. Or as the 70s would put it, Jesus saves. But he didn't save out of convenience, friends. He didn't save because we had much to offer him. He saved in spite of what we offered him, which was our rejection. Because even though it was one of the 12, they were all asking this. Don't you find it ironic? They're like, is it me? Like if I was Jesus, I would be like, is it you? What about me? Why are you still so worried about yourself? All they can think of when they hear about betrayal is, well, it's not going to be me, is it? They don't think like, the Savior of the world is going to be betrayed. That shows you how selfish they were. And you know what? It shows us how selfish we are. Because some of us are here this morning and we don't think we're all that bad. We're like those other 11 disciples who quote-unquote didn't, didn't openly betray Jesus. We're like, no, I'm one of the good guys. I'm one of the good girls. I have a lot to offer the Savior. He's kind of lucky he saved me. That's not what our text teaches us. Our text shows us and reminds us that as Martin Luther would say, we all hold the nails of Christ's crucifixion in our pockets. And as we walk around, we can feel those nails in our pockets. Because the truth of the matter is, the real matter, whether you believe it or not, is you have those nails in your pocket right now. And some of us will betray Jesus this afternoon, after we have participated in this. You look at this passage, you think, how heinous. 
that the treasurer, no offense, Dave, the treasurer of the group of leaders, the guy who's responsible for helping the mission go forward, steals that money and makes a little on the side by agreeing for 30 pieces of silver to show the religious leaders where Jesus is and, and, and what he's doing while he's in a prayer meeting. I mean, think about that emotionally. If you knew this was going on, what would be going through your head? I can't do this. I can't do this. It was a painful supper. But lastly, it's a new supper. It's a new supper. And this is the heart of what we're doing, and I hope this is, this is a way in which we can appreciate in greater depth that Jesus begins to reinterpret it for his own purposes. And here's how he says it. So I said all those elements, he only highlights two. Or at least the writer of this particular passage only brings out the two things. He would have done all those things, but these are the ones that he reinterprets. And this is what he says. And as they, and it says the institution of the Lord's Supper, not meaning like, like, the, like the institution, but like he's starting a new covenant here. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. Now what he what they were expecting was this. Break it. And he says a prayer of blessing. Praised be thou, O Lord, sovereign of the world who causes bread to come forth from the earth. That's what you would say when you break the bread. What does he say? Take, eat. This is my body. I mean, wow. you imagine being there? Someone say like, Jesus was a great teacher. And I would say this to anyone who has that argument. How can you say that in that moment? How can you reinterpret the Passover and look at the disciples, look them straight in the eye and say, new covenant and not be either considered absolutely lunatic or the savior of the world? I don't believe there are other options here. I mean, if someone walked you, anyone who walks up to you and says, there's a third covenant in town and it's me. You're like, I got to get you to a center or something like that and get you some help. Because that's crazy. That's what Jesus says. He doesn't bless and say, oh, sovereign of the world. He says, I'm sovereign. This is my body that's going to break for you. This is the new covenant coming. Bread has always symbolized the wholeness of God. And so that's why in the desert, in the, in the Passover story, what does God provide for sustenance? Bread, manna. When he describes himself as a way of provisionary to his people, what does he say? I'm the bread of life. When he performs miracles, what does he do? He takes five loaves of bread and creates enormous amount of bread and says, I will provide. And so when he takes this bread and he breaks it, instead of saying, how great is God? He says, look to me, I'm sovereign. It's my body that will break for you. It's amazing. It's amazing transition. And this is why in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it actually talks about bread and leaven and saying like the leaven is, the, 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 the yeast, it's, that's what leaven is. The yeast is like sin, decaying sin. He says, take that out, get rid of that. 
And then what does the writer of the book of 1 Corinthians say? For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The only way to get really clean is to believe in Jesus, not to break bread like this. Not to simply take part in this celebration, but to believe in Jesus Christ, who is the bread, whose body was not symbolically broken, it was broken. He was nearly whipped to death on the cross. He nearly bled to death on the cross. To make sure that he was dead, one of the soldiers stuck a spear in his side. He hung and suffocated. This is not symbolism. We partake in a very ungraphic, unviolent celebration. He did not. That blood was real. That blood dripped off his head to the ground. That body, not his bones, but that body was a broken body. If you've ever seen the passion of the Christ, it's hard to take. And here's why. You can't even recognize Jesus by the end. His face. So bloodied. He looks like he's been in a UFC fight where the referee didn't know when to stop the fight. It's horrible. It's hard to stomach. I can't even let my kids watch this until they're as of age. It's so bad. When Jesus says, my body is broken for you. This means something to us. This means the world to us. Why would he do this unless this would not accomplish what he had set out to accomplish? That God did not just simply say, I will pay a sacrifice for you. I'll pay a fee. I'll pay a dollar. I'll write the check. He said, no, I'll be the check. I'll come to earth. I'll be a man. I'll live the life that you should have lived and I will die the death that you and I deserve. And I'll do it because I love you. And every week, he says, just remember this. The cup symbolizes his blood. That's very graphic for many of us. We don't like this idea at all. Blood. It's very violent. Very violent. But again, Jesus, as he passes the cup, excuse me, he does not simply say, God is salvation. He does not say, look to God to save you. What does he do? He says, drink it. This is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus didn't just pay a sacrifice. He shed his blood. He didn't just come to earth. He paid a sacrifice, sorry. The Old Testament imagery was like, somebody has to pay for this. Any way forward in the sacrificial system, somebody had to pay. For centuries, it had been a lamb. For centuries, it had been an innocent animal. 
And there were times when the priest, who was kind of the mediator, the old mediator of the old covenant, would put his hands on the head of a lamb, confess the sins of the people, and then send that lamb out into the wilderness as a way of expiating the sin upon that lamb and sending it away because God is so holy. He just wants the sin, the decay. Are you hearing all these words? Sent away from the people. And here's what happens on the cross with Jesus. Is God puts his hand upon his own son, Jesus Christ, and he takes all the sins of the world and he says, pay for them. Pay for them. And even as he hangs on the cross, blood dripping down his eyes, probably so thick that they're probably welded shut with coagulated blood. And he says... Father, forgive these people because they don't know what they're doing. They need a savior. And there's Jesus passing the cup around and saying, don't look to God just for salvation. Look to me. Because that I am God. Don't look to this imaginary man that you can't talk to or this imaginary being. He says, this is my blood. It's my covenant. I'm God. I'll pay for your sins. Now, friends, it's so hard to talk about this without me being emotional. I understand that. And rice avies are typically weepers. But now, does it make sense why we celebrate this every week? Why we say, isn't this good news? That it's no lo- you don't know, no longer have to be Jewish and celebrate the Passover, that anyone who can put their trust in Jesus Christ essentially places their hands on Jesus' body and says, please pay for my sins because I can't. And that's what we do. You know, this is why we say every week that if you don't believe this, don't come up here. Not because we don't want you to partake in this, but because this is such a sacred meal for us. This is so special to us. This is magnificent that Jesus would do it. We just don't want to take it lightly. We don't want to just assume that you think it's magical or that there's some special pixie dust, gospel pixie dust that just flies off the bread and just makes you feel better about who you are. No, this meal says... By participating in it, I believe this. I believe this. And I'll ask this morning, where are you with this? Maybe you've made a decision in the past. Maybe you've said, you put your trust. Maybe you said, you've raised your hand. My friends, can you come up and take this today with full conviction? You believe Jesus is your lamb. And if you can, then this is what I want us to celebrate. And I don't think we have to be sour about it. I think we can have this sense of joy. Absolutely. But there's also a sense in which there's just a hushed reverence sometimes. That we just need to respect the God who decided that this is the way that he was going to save us. And so we want to continue to change even the way that we do this, friends. Like, 
we've kind of done it very individually in the past where, you know, people line up and they kind of take it as individuals. But the strange thing about the Passover meal is that you couldn't do it as an individual. You had to do it with a minimum of 10 people. In fact, that was the rabbinical law, which was like, there's a minimum of 10 that, that, that per lamb. That's why it was perfectly normal for Jesus to have 12 around him. Very normal. That's a perfect kind of number. And so what we want you to do is consider, like if you're part of a city group and you need prayer, why don't you take it with someone in your city group? Why don't you take the elements and go off to the corner and say, I just want to pray a blessing of Jesus' good news over you. Why don't you ask, this is a good time to ask Jesus for those who you think need salvation. It's a great time to pray for the salvation of others. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Could you save more? Could you save my friend? Could you show them how glorious you are? It's a great time to confess your sins to one another. And Jesus, I have been disobedient to you. I have ignored you. I have pretended that this isn't reality. And I've been taking this meal over and over again without really thinking about what you have done to pay the price for my sins. And you just need to confess that to someone. Grab someone you trust. Take it with them. Pray that out loud with them. We would say respect kind of the, the line. So there's, there's lots of room here at the Kirby Center. Find someone who just... Just the Spirit of God is coming upon you and say, I want to pray with that person. I want to pray for that person. I want that person to pray for me. So we'd love for this time to be not just an individual, thank you for my sins being forgiven, now I sing. We want this to be a special moment, almost like a meal, where you linger after a good meal and just enjoy the elements and enjoy thinking through this. And so I'll call the band up. And this is our time to respond. We believe that the preaching should come first in the service so that we can hear what God has to say and then we honestly want to be able to respond. Want to spend some time responding. And so that's my hope for us. That's what I prayed for. That's what we've prayed for as a band, that we would be able to respond well as a community together and to partake with some freedom here. And so let me pray for us as we get ready to partake.